Hi everyone, Lucas Werner here. If you've been enjoying these conversations with artists, I invite you to come visit David's Werner Gallery exhibitions in person. We're located in New York, Los Angeles, London, Paris, and Hong Kong. New exhibitions open each month. Plan your visit at davidswerner.com. So I am Sarah Shulman, and I am a writer. From David's Werner, this is Dialogues, a podcast about artists and the way they think. What was happening was that the people who did all the work were not getting any historical credit, and I hate that. Because it, it, if you could see that a guy who works in a furniture store got a drug release that saved people's lives, then it becomes something that you can do. And it doesn't, it, and it's not, you know, glorified beyond possibility. Um, so the misrepresentation of who did this work and how it was done was killing me. Mm. I couldn't live with it. Mm. Uh, so I really wanted people to get credit for what they did. I'm Helen Molesworth, your host for this season. Every episode features a conversation with artists, curators, writers, designers, philosophers, filmmakers, and musicians about what it means to make things today. Hey everyone, it's Helen. In this episode, I'm speaking with the novelist, playwright, activist, and AIDS historian, Sarah Shulman. Sarah's most recent book, Let the Record Show, a Political History of Act Up New York, 1987 to 1993, is a landmark document of the activist response to the AIDS crisis. Drawing on nearly 200 interviews, it is the most comprehensive history of this period to date. This conversation was recorded last summer in the studios of WOMR, the local independent radio station in Provincetown, my and Sarah's summer haunt of many decades. For those who don't know, P-Town is unique in the United States for being an explicitly queer town, long synonymous with freedom of expression and artistic community. We explore not only the triumphs, challenges, and many histories of ACT UP, but the nature of activist movements in general, as well as ACT UP's many brushes with artists and the art world. I hope you enjoy it. First, I want to say that we are recording today from the radio studios WOMR in Provincetown, Massachusetts, Outermost Cape Radio. And because we are in Provincetown, uh, the first question, Sarah, that I actually want to ask you is, one, if you would describe Provincetown for people who haven't been here, and then two, if you might talk a little bit about why you come here. Uh, and why it's important to you. Well, I was first brought here in the 90s by Grace Paley uh, to teach at the Fine Arts Work Center, and I've been doing that ever since. So historically, I would come and teach at the Fine Arts Work Center for a week and teach a kind of boot camp writing class, and then I would flip my paycheck and stay for a second week. And uh, But this summer, I had a very different experience, which is my, my play, The Lady Hamlet, had its world premiere at the Provincetown Theater. So I came, and they put me up, and I was here for rehearsal for the entire run of the play. I taught my class at the Fine Arts Work Center, and now my partner, Leslie, is here, and we're actually having vacation. So I've actually been here for two and a half months. And the thing about this place is the longer you stay, the longer you want to stay. So how would you describe it to someone who's never been here? 
Well, it's changed a lot over the years, but the one thing that doesn't change is its pristine natural beauty. I go swimming every day. The water is so clean. You can see all the crabs and the fish and everything as you're swimming, and there's gorgeous um, bike trails, and it's just absolutely beautiful. And it's a gay town, so a lot of the hassle of being in the straight world is completely removed. So you can do whatever you want. Nobody bothers you. You're treated like a normal person. You can walk around in the middle of the night. Um, it's just a kind of a little bit utopic in that way. Unfortunately, it has become very, very expensive, and it's being East Hamptonized quite a bit right now. So when I first started coming, all of the kitchen work and everything was done by young gay kids who would get cheap housing, and now there is no cheap housing. So they import people from Bulgaria to do be the service class, and that's a very strange thing here. So if you can find a way to come here where you don't have to pay the full ride, that is the way to do it. Yes, that's absolutely true. And I came here, I've had two different introductions through two different chapters in my life to Provincetown. But I never, I never fail to be amazed by a kind of invisible weight that I don't even know I'm carrying the rest of the year. The way, like my first walk into Commercial Street or my first um, plunge into the water at Herring Cove, and I realize I don't have that weight on me. And that weight, of course, is heterosexuality and P-Town is the only place I know where all public space is queer space. Open to everybody. Plenty of straight people in town. Plenty of non-queer people in town. But man, the terms of engagement are generally queer and and also there's a level of real culture here there's a really good film festival i had a great experience at the theater and the fine arts work center has fantastic writers giving readings every week so there's that and the museum too i mean the museum does you know a few years ago it did a show of helen frankenthaler in provincetown it, this place has a history of painters coming to your point earlier about its natural beauty Everyone from Hans Hoffman in the 50s to people like Blanche Lazelle in the 20s to Frankenthaler and Motherwell being here in the 60s. I mean, and now we have people, you know, I know Jack Pearson comes out here and John Waters and Eileen Miles and yourself. So um, that tradition of this being a really cultured place continues. All right. Well, so you wrote this book about ACT UP. You started covering AIDS and HIV as a city hall reporter. You were a, an active member of ACT UP, which is the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power. As ACT UP's work came to a close, you then engaged with your partner, Jim Hubbard, uh, in the ACT UP Oral History Project, where you the two of you set out to do something quite Herculean. You interviewed almost every living um, member. Well, we interviewed 188 people. There are hundreds that we didn't interview. Right. But it took 18 years. And I just want to say that it was funded initially by our late friend, Irvishi Vad, mm -hmm. when she was at the Ford Foundation. And for listeners who don't know, Irvishi Vad was an extremely important lesbian activist who also had a prominent role. She lived here in Provincetown part-time with her partner, Kate Clinton. Um, 
So you and Jim do the Act Up Oral History Project takes 18 years, and then you write, I haven't actually committed the page number to uh, to memory, that you write an almost 700-page book about Act Up. So I think it's fair to say that like the majority of your adult life has been structured in some part uh, by the AIDS-HIV crisis, the activism that it engendered, and the results, the extraordinary results that that activism engendered. I, I would just want to say that it has actually not been my primary focus, has not been AIDS. The focus of my life's work has been creating uh, complex lesbian characters in fiction and um, in plays. And this is something that happened while I was on duty. And I, Jim and I took the responsibility for our dead friends very seriously. But it's not my primary work. I remember reading After Dolores sometime in the late 1980s. Um, as a young person, I bought it in a bookstore. <laughs> I think I probably bought it at St. Mark's. Um, and it was riveting to me because it was, um, I think maybe the first contemporary novel, like it was set in real time in a real place and girls were having sex in it. And it was the first time the sex wasn't occluded or historical or somehow rendered pornographic from some other kind of audience for me. It was a breakthrough novel for me. I think it was the first modern lesbian novel to be published by a corporate press that was reviewed favorably in the New York Times. That was its notoriety. So, okay, so from the outside, it looks like your entire adult life has been structured <laughs> by your work in and around AIDS and HIV. And it's what I wanted to talk to you about today because of the book. And one of the things I wanted to ask you is what in your life led you to this work in terms of your earliest educational experiences? Well, there's a lot of cofactors, but I come from a Holocaust family and my grandmother who lived with us had two brothers and two sisters who were murdered in the Holocaust and my grandfather's sister was murdered. So I knew about it from the day I was born, because this is in the olden days where they did not hide things from children. And my family's line on it was that people knew what was happening, but they didn't do anything. So the horror of being a bystander was there for me as a concept from the beginning. So that's probably the origin of a lot of things. Mm. That's um, really interesting. One of the things we people are whispering about to each other now is that the fascism is here, it's coming. There's an extraordinary amount, a low hum of anxiety, even from people who have participated in, you know, pretty straightforward American representational politics are, you know, really uneasy. And I wanted to know if you thought this moment was any more or less fascist in its um, outlook and procedures than the moment of the AIDS-HIV crisis, the plague years, in which also the, that kind of rhetoric and fear was very much part of the kinds of conversations people had at the time. This is a proto-fascist period. Um, 
You know, when I started being a reporter for the feminist press and the gay press, and I just want to remind people that in the olden days, every city had gay newspapers and feminist newspapers, and some had more than one of each. And there was this whole battalion of young gay journalists working for free, uh, trying to create, identify what the issues were for our communities and to develop analyses. And I started that in 1979. Now, 79 is a very key year for the march towards fascism in the United States. First of all, it's the year of the Hyde Amendment. So abortion was legal in New York in 71. Then it became legal nationally in 73. By 79, we had the Hyde Amendment that took away Medicaid funding except in seven states. So really, there was only abortion rights from 73 to 79. And from then on, the anti-abortion movement did this incrementalism where they restricted abortion in many, many different ways. So by the time we've just had the Supreme Court ruling, abortion has not been available to large numbers of people for many years. So we have now um, a Supreme Court, you know, an extreme rollback of what already limited abortion rights were in place. We have the criminalization and the, the, the just straight-up harassment of trans people and the manipulation of um, transphobia uh, into a political engine. And I wanted to ask you, in relationship specifically also to the AIDS and HIV crisis, what is it about um, authoritarian tendencies slash regimes that seize on this sort of the crosshairs of bodily autonomy and the medical establishment? Like, why do we keep finding ourselves in these crosshairs, women, queer people, trans people, people of color, in which a large part of the, um, the crisis is in fact our interface with the medical profession. Funny, I don't see it through that lens. Mm. I mean, for me, it's this, there's a delusion that is encouraged among dominant cultural people that they are objective and neutral and value-free. And when other people have subjectivity, it renders them subjective as well. And that's the change of self-perception that they cannot tolerate. So the idea, I mean, for people who are in the more liberal category, they have a fantasy that if there's some kind of equality and other people are allowed to participate, that everything's going to be exactly the same, except with this other participation. And I hear that all the time now, because everywhere I go, people are saying, well, I'm a white man, therefore I can't get a job, or um, they can only do one white play a year or, you know, this type of thing. It's it's pervasive. I hear it in every single realm that I'm in. And of course, um, because they had a fantasy that they were going to be benevolent, but that absolutely nothing was going to change in a structure. And I don't even know that it's changing. It could even just be a fad. But I, that's what I think it is, the the narcissism and the grandiosity of seeing oneself as neutral is right. what's at stake. I know when. Um... When in the years leading up to the gay marriage rights and everyone would say, you know, the right wing was saying it'll fundamentally challenge the definition of marriage. And most of my straight liberal friends said, no, it won't. And I said, oh, no, it will. 
If we're lucky, gay marriage would, in fact, perhaps put some pressure on what a heterosexual marriage looks like because gay marriages are going to look different than heterosexual marriages. So this sense that we're not all trying to like sort of accede to some neutral point, but that, in fact, um, these well, rights require difference as part of their establishment. While gay people favor gay marriage, most gay people have rejected gay marriage. It's only like 10% that have gotten married. So the majority of queer people do not want to be married. Yeah, I'm married. And we got married because we bought a house. And lesbians, we were very, we knew all too well that marriage relations are property relations. And this is a way that we, we were going to own property together. So we were going to engage in property relations. Well, it's interesting because the whole monkeypox thing is revealing to the straight world that gay male sexual culture that they associated with the pre-AIDS era has not changed. And I think they're a little surprised. Oh, that's interesting. So I want to talk a little bit now about the book in specifics. ACT UP was, it for me personally, but I think also, quote unquote, objectively, you know, like, one of the dominant political resistance movements of the second half of the 20th century. It has extremely long-lasting effects in arenas that people are not typically aware of. So, for instance, experimental drug testing, patient-centered medicine, and even the Clinton-era call for universal health care, which is, you know, then somewhat established under the um, Obama presidency and, you know, erroneously called Obamacare. Like these are direct outcomes of the street-based, media-based, research-based activism that was happening in New York in the late 80s and early 90s. And I guess I wanted to ask you a few questions, if you could just tell our listening audience what do you think were the fundamental, quote-unquote, achievements of ACT UP? I will tell you, and then I'll tell you what the biggest obstacle was. So the, the biggest victories between 87 and 93, the six years that I cover in my book, were forcing the FDA to make experimental drugs available to people who needed them. Because uh, at that time, there was only one track, and it took forever for a drug to be approved. The second was forcing the CDC and Social Security to um, acknowledge that women deserved benefits uh, when they had AIDS because women could not get AIDS diagnoses because their symptoms were different than men. And women were excluded from experimental drug trials because in the 60s there was a drug called thalidomide that was given to pregnant women who many had children born without limbs and they sued pharma for hundreds of millions of dollars. And pharma's response was no more women in experimental drug trials. So when there's no treatments, trials are the only treatment, and women were literally excluded from treatment. And ACT UP ran a four-year campaign that overturned that, which in many ways is its far, most farthest-reaching victory, because today, any woman in the world with HIV who takes a medication is taking something that was tested on women. Um, it's also the greatest victory for women and people of color in the history of HIV. It's also a rare time that a predominantly white male organization won a victory for women and people of color. So it's very significant. ACT UP created Needle Exchange in New York City. And this was at a time when abstinence was the only 
answer to addiction. And ACT UP got on the train of this brand new idea called harm reduction. And the uh, former and current drug users who were in ACT UP took a very high-risk strategy of illegally exchanging needles in order to get arrested so that they could have a trial. And they actually won and made needle exchange legal. Just one aside about that trial, it's quite interesting. I have a photo in my book of three defendants and a lawyer. The defendants are a white straight woman at the time, Debbie Levine, a white trans woman, Kathy Otterson, a black gay man, Dan Williams, and a lesbian lawyer, Jill Harris. And I always wondered, like, how come this photo didn't become the emblematic photo of ACT UP? You know, it was... So anyway, ACT UP took on the Catholic Church. And this was at a time when the Catholic Church, the cardinal, was more powerful than the mayor and was in office longer. And this is before the pre-sex scandal. And um, the church was trying to obstruct the distribution of condoms in the public schools and ACT UP in December of 1989 disrupted Mass at St. Patrick's Cathedral. And this was a scandal, a global scandal, that homosexuals with AIDS disrupted Mass. And, um, at St. Patrick's Cathedral. That's right. And condom distribution was kept in place. And, you know, and in, in biggest terms, ACT UP transformed the way that queer people and people with AIDS saw themselves and were seen by the world. So those are like the key wins, but there are many other ones. Um, the problem is that we did not realize how much of an obstruction capitalism was going to be. And we're seeing the same thing now with, with drugs that we have for monkeypox, for COVID. We see PrEP. Medications can be created, but we do not have an equitable and functional healthcare delivery system in this country so that even if treatments exist, people cannot get them. And that was something that we really didn't understand. So that's what's obstructing everything right now. Right. So um, the book is written in a way that is unusual, I think, for this kind of book. On the one hand, it's a relatively straightforward chronology of actions, meetings, fights, resolutions, and achievement. And then it is continually interspersed with first-person accounts that cover, you know, hundreds of people get their first-person account. And one of the things that that means is that the book is kind of readable in two ways. You can read it from start to finish, or you can just open it at any page and start reading. And I wondered if you would just talk a little bit um, from the point of view as of a writer, and then as an activist, what, what work is that dual structure right. of the book doing? So... If I had not been a novelist, and if I had not already published 19 books, and if I had not already written a number of highly experimental books, I would not have been able to write this. Because what I realized right at the beginning is that if I told the story chronologically, it would be inaccurate. Because so many things happened at the same time. And in fact, simultaneity of action is what made ACT UP effective. And the reason there was simultaneity of action is because it the organization had radical democracy internally. So if you and I disagreed about a strategy, there was a bottom line. Let me just start with that. It was a one-line statement of unity, direct action to end the AIDS crisis. And if you had an idea that was direct action to end the AIDS crisis and I didn't like it, 
I would argue with you. And we screamed at each other. And in fact, we're still screaming at each other in our 60s and 70s. But in the end, if, if I didn't like what you were doing, I just wouldn't do it. I wouldn't try to stop you from doing it. And then I would find my five people and we would go do my idea. And this created this huge range of actions on so many different levels of social milieu, of aesthetics, of goals happening at the same time. And so that's the winning strategy. And how do you convey that formally? And I, once I understood that, I kind of knew what to do because I'm very experienced. And so I decided to create these chapters that took different strategies, but put them in an order where they would resonate to create a larger feeling or whole. And so that was, that was sort of the artistic approach. In terms of the content and the politics of it, um, AIDS has been misrepresented from the beginning, from the very first day. It, the first name for AIDS was gay-related immune deficiency. Well, there's no such thing as gay-related immune deficiency. There's no biomarker for queerness. It's a false concept. It's just like gay cancer. There's no such thing as gay cancer. So the whole history of AIDS is a history of misrepresentations. The works of art that have been um, held as supreme are inaccurate. The representations historically and documentary-wise are false. Um, it's just been completely misrepresented. So the very first thing I needed to sh show politically was that a handful of people cannot make a change, a paradigm change on that level. It's not only inaccurate, it's impossible. Because in the United States, change happens in coalition. And so I, I, sh I, I discuss 140 people, which is not even half of ACT UP. Right. Just for people to understand what it takes. Right. And these are people who are very special people. They are a kind of person, characterologically, who cannot be a bystander. They're incredibly effective, and they were enormously committed. However, they all disagree with each other. And that's also part of the radical democracy of the organization. Because we're in a moment where people are very homogeneity-oriented, which is detrimental to building political opposition. And there's so much pressure on people to have exactly the same strategy, to use exactly the same words, to agree on the same analysis. And let me tell you that historically, any movement that has, exist, that has insisted on homogeneity has failed. And there's no exception to that. It does not work. And yet that's where we are now. Mm. So I needed to show that creating a structure that allows people to be effective from where they're at is the most effective way, is, is the most efficient way to have political opposition. And this is the lesson that we need to learn from ACT UP because we're in a period now where almost every constituency in this country is under attack. And all of these communities and constituencies are not going to agree on a full range of analyses or strategies. And people have to grow up and learn how to cooperate with people when you have agreement. And when you don't, you don't work with them on that. And it's tough. It's hard. It's, you have to be a grown-up. But that's what works. What do you think, from where you sit as both participant and observer and critic, what do you think has happened to us culturally that disagreement is something we cannot broker? I mean, we know that this partisanship is now more 
I mean, in regular electoral politics, the partisanship is more severe than ever. Religious extremism, we know, breeds partisanship. But even within the quote-unquote so-called left, whatever baggy assortment of folks that we're going to put in that very, very big tent, um, now has, we've developed, like, not we don't even really value consensus anymore. You know, we've moved away from consensus on the left as well into a kind of punitive sets of arrangements around, for instance, what language is being used or you know, who has access to what. We, we don't have a lot of capacity, it seems to me, to handle the kind of disagreement that you are saying was the engine, in a way, around ACT UP. I don't totally agree. Okay. I think it's very hard to actually know what's going on in political movements. And that's, you know, there's very few good histories of political movements. My book is highly influenced by Taylor Branch's Parting the Waters, which is a similar strategic analysis of the civil rights movement. But it's very hard to know what movements are doing because the corporate press does not report on them. But there are people in every city who are working on police violence, who are working on abolition, who are working on immigration reform, who are in movements like Palestine Solidarity. You know, there's a lot of people doing anti-eviction work who are doing fantastic work everywhere. The problem is that there's a discourse that may not actually be in those actual movements that are actually doing the work because we have this false reality of social media. Mm. And there, there's a mistaken idea about what activism is. There's at least a generation that thinks that activism is taking people down and saying what's wrong with them. And that's actually the opposite of it. Real activism is opening doors for people and making things possible. And real leadership is helping people be effective from where they're at. So this, you know, constant attack thing and ultra micro critique is the opposite of what activism really is. Mm. In reading the book, I've read it twice. Uh, I read it last summer and then I read it again in preparation for coming here today. One of the things I really thought about it this time was this is a book that is like ridiculously researched, like has incredible facts and figures at its fingertips, is synthesizing, as you said, you know, 100, 160 voices into some kind of narrative. And it's this book that you can pick up and put down. So I thought this book has a kind of brilliance in that it is a, a how-to manual written for a distracted populace. Like at the moment when we have the least amount capacity for attention of perhaps ever before in humankind, this is a book that you can kind of dip in and out of and get these little hits. And I guess I'm curious, one, if you, um, you know, you just mentioned the irreality of social media, which is certainly true for people uh, on our generational side of things. Did you write it with social media in mind? Did you, was that part of its tempo and strategy? Because it does seem like you did write it, not for the people who were in ACT UP, not for the people who went to protests. I mean. Like, we know what happened, um, or we know our version of what happened, but it seems like it's really written for 
younger people. And I'm curious about that. Well, it has a simultaneity of purpose because what was happening was that the people who did all the work were not getting any historical credit. And I hate that because it, it, if you could see that a guy who works in a furniture store got a drug release that saved people's lives, then it becomes something that you can do. And it doesn't, it, and it's not, you know, glorified beyond possibility. Um, so the misrepresentation of who did this work and how it was done was killing me. Mm. I couldn't live with it. Mm. Uh, so I really wanted people to get credit for what they did. However, Jim Hubbard and I have been clear from the very first day that we started the Oral History Project in 2001 that this is not a nostalgia project and that it's geared towards people who want to see how change has been made. It's not a blueprint. It's just information. But there's a lot of practical information in there. You know, and that, that was our goal. And I want to say that our website, which is actuporalhistory.org, has had 14 million hits. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Wow, that's incredible. So you wanted credit where credit was due. Um, I hear implicit in that, and I'll say for folks who haven't read the book yet, that it seems like part of the credit where credit is due is that the media certainly gave us an image both of the crisis and the activist response to the crisis, that it was predominantly something that happened to white gay men and that white gay men were able to respond to it and that because they were white and because they were men, that the movement had a kind of political efficacy. And your book makes it really clear that the movement was you know, in, intersectional to its core. It was an extremely diverse movement in which women and people of color did more than play an ancillary role, uh, that the myth of the lesbian caretaker is in fact just that. It's a myth um, that the whiteness of the group also had a, a, a kind of mythic quality to it. And so you're insisting on the participation, you know, on that kind of history as well. I would say it a little differently. Mm -hmm. ACT UP was a gay, white gay male organization predominantly. However, only the older men were politically experienced because they had been in gay liberation. Most of the younger white gay men who were the majority of people in ACT UP had not came in not politically experienced. But there were two constituencies that came in very politically experienced. One was Latinos. This was the era of fascist dictatorships in Argentina and Chile, and it was right after the uh, radical student movement in Mexico City. And there were exiles who were very politicized. There also were women who came out of Bedford Hills Prison who came in to act up, who were Puerto Rican and Dominican. So there were people who came in with a lot of savvy. And then there, were, there was the lesbian contingent who had came, came out of reproductive rights movement of the 70s. and the multitasking of reproductive rights politics, the idea of holding a lot of different issues at the same time and seeing how they're related to each other really influenced ACT UP. Also, uh, nonviolent civil disobedience training, which people like Jamie Bauer brought from the women's peace movement of the 70s, and the concept of patient-centered politics, which was brought from reproductive rights by people like Marion Banzoff and Risa Denenberg. And I show the events where these ideas were brought. These were integral ideas. So it's not a numbers game. It's more about influences, because it was a majority white gay male organization. Now, on the other hand, there was a Monday night meeting. And if you look at Jim Hubbard's film, United in Anger, which people can see for free on YouTube or Canopy, you will see that that Monday night meeting was predominantly white gay men. 
However, there were people in ACT UP who were also in other movements. Uh, and I'm, they, they were less visible at the Monday night meeting. So in my book, I talk about people who were working on the Haitian Underground Railroad, people who were working inside Bedford Hills Prison, people who were working on needle exchange, uh, people who were working with children who were HIV positive, people who were doing high school organizing. They weren't always at that meeting, but they were satellites of ACT UP and had overlap. So ACT UP's reach was far bigger than we thought. And the reason that we have misideas about this is because the media created Larry Kramer um, as the, quote, leader of ACT UP. There, I interviewed 188 people. Not one person thought Larry Kramer was a, the leader of ACT UP. This was an externally created myth. So that was one of the reasons. The second is that the media at the time was predominantly white and male. You know, there was no Rachel Maddow in those days. And the media would come to a demonstration and they would interview white men. And so a lot of the official corporate footage from the day is white men. But when you look at ACT UP's own video collectives, like Testing the Limits, like Diva TV, their footage is filled with, or House of Color, Color, or lots of other collectives with women, with people of color, with all kinds of people who are not in the corporate footage. And somebody should do a film comparing the internal and external footage because it's really shocking. Mm. That's interesting. And it also slightly opens the door to another faction or group of people that were in ACT UP that at the time seemed very important to me personally because it was the group I came from. But there was an enormous amount of artists in ACT UP. And some of the things I hear you say, um, the simultaneity of events, um, and wanting to write something in a way that preserved that simultaneity rather than smoothing everything out into chronology. That's like one of the ways we could talk about painting, for instance. Uh, these media collectives you just mentioned, these are, you know, uh, the rise of the Porta Pack and video, Sony video camera in the 70s is well documented in the art world. And it gave people, you know, an incredible sense that they could make their own media. And then, of course, there was a visual look and a, and a kind of campaign, a branding avant the letra of, it wasn't a term anyone would have ever used in 88, 89, 92, but there is something about Avram Finkelstein and that, you know, that incredible silence equals death logo poster. So do, in your discussion of ACT UP, you are very clear to point out those many different effects of different groups. And I'm curious what you think the effect of so many artists being well, in ACT I, you UP. Know, and I say this in the book, experimental film was very influential in ACT UP. And I, I name many, many, many experimental filmmakers who were in ACT UP. And, you know, Jim Hubbard and I co-founded Mix, which was the Queer Experimental Film Festival. We co-founded it the same year that ACT UP was founded. So right at the height of the AIDS crisis. And Mix existed for 33 years. Right. And the thing when you create a venue for a marginalized group of people is that it, then it produces artists. Because if people know they have a place to show their work, they will make the work. You know, so venue creates art. For me personally, I had a relationship with an experimental filmmaker named Abigail Child in the years right before ACT UP. And that was the impetus for Jim and I starting Mix was her influence on me. And she was also part of the language poetry movement. 
So I was exposed to this kind of heavy formal invention and all the th great things you could do with it. And of course, I was a fan of, and a, I would to say friend is to be a too, too big a word, but of Kathy Acker and was very influenced by people like mm -hmm. her as well, which is the generation before me. So, and because the ACT UP was in some ways an East Village event and not a West Village event. And so all the downtown experimental artwork that came out of there heavily influenced the movement. And do you think there is something about those movements, especially experimental film, with its, you know, skepticism about narrative or its complicating strategies around narrative, um, and then a kind of downtown scene in New York that was, you know, really structured by, at that moment, um, a generation of artists that were called the pictures generation that were really taking on what it meant to be the first generation of artists for whom there was a television in the living room, for whom they had to literally test every image against like every other image that had ever been made. And I'm curious what you think that enabled the movement to do. It, it enabled us to be ahead, to be aesthetically ahead. But I want to say that my lifelong friends, Jack Waters and Peter Kramer, um, who are experimental artists in the East Village, we are currently working with the historian Hugh Ryan to try to create a book about the queer avant-garde in the East Village, because this is a real void in art history and in queer history. It's the post-Judson, post-Warhol, pre-rent, that period, um, where... The, and by rent, you mean the Broadway play, right? Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. Where the East Village is producing art ideas for the world, and... It's the first generation of queer artists to be completely out in their work, where it's not subtextual. Right. And it's so crucial, and it's been completely overlooked, because almost none of those people became successful financially. I mean, you could say Nan Golden is partially part of that, um, but there's very few people whose work has become known or who've been able to earn a living. It has remained a marginal period. Mm -hmm. And also a lot of it is pre-video and this is an obstacle because there's not. Right. And also so many people died of AIDS. So it's interesting that when you look at artists from that period, um, you know, like why is David Wanarovich considered the emblematic artist of that period? And of course he's a great artist. But if you asked anybody at the time, they would have said Jack Smith. Mm -hmm. But Jack Smith did not produce commodifiable objects. And David did, and those objects are owned by collectors who are on the boards of museums. So when, when, a whole, when a whole group of people die in an unnatural way, very quickly, history kind of seizes on it and picks out who's emblematic. But it doesn't mean that at the time they were seen that way. Right. Sarah, I have to offer you my personal thanks. Um, the, young, the young Helen in 1984 at SUNY Albany. Uh, clearly reading um, the Sophie Horowitz book, the slightly older Helen, who then read After Dolores, um, and um, two other great books you've written that we haven't even discussed, but um, The Gentrification of the Mind and Conflict is Not Abuse. Uh, for anyone out there listening right now, if you haven't read those two books, uh, you, you simply must because they will help explain um, New York. The Art World, The Gentrification Book, and um, our current, um, perhaps, over-fetishization of trauma. Uh, and when we think about conflict is not abuse. And really to just thank you from the bottom of my heart for the ACT UP work and for this book, which um, 
I think is just an extraordinary achievement. So thank you again, Sarah Shulman. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Helen. Thank you. Dialogues is produced by David Zwerner. If you like this episode, please follow, rate, and review us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. It really does help the show. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you join us here next time.